0: Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 531, Seducer of the Soul. Why are we so quick to forget stories of God's faithfulness in our lives? Was Peter the rock on which the church was built? And why did Jesus wait two years to ask his disciples what other people were saying about him? Let's find out together as we study the first half of Matthew chapter 16.
1: Hello, everyone. We're back together again on this long journey through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, today we're on episode thirty-one, rather amazingly, and we're going to look at just the, the first half, the first two-thirds of of chapter sixteen, because there's so much in it that as I was preparing, I realized it's just too overwhelming to cover it all. So um, we'll start on verse one, chapter sixteen. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to test the word. Actually, is tempt Jesus. Uh, They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah, Then he left them and went away. Excuse me. This section, uh, up to verse twelve, is just a thematic continuation of what we were talking about in the previous chapter, chapter fifteen, of the conflict going on between Jesus and the Pharisees. Remember that uh, prior to about four hundred A.D., there were no chapter breaks or verses. And so when it was written, it just carried on. By the way, uh, parenthetically, I encourage you when you get to the end of a chapter, just follow on a little bit more just to see if it's actually continuing or if there is a a logical break. There isn't always a logical break at the beginning of a chapter. Excuse me. So as we've already noted, Matthew is stressing the contrast between the religious leaders' uh, unbelief with the uh, belief and excitement of the crowds. Uh, He's also stressing the contrast between their refusal to embrace the freedom and the blessing that Jesus is bringing to Israel. This isn't the first time that they came to Jesus with a demand for a sign. You can read about it in chapter 12. We covered that a few weeks ago. If you want to look back at episode 26, because Jesus gave the very same response when they asked for a sign, he said, no sign will be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. I developed that a few weeks ago, so you can go back to, if you want to look a little further at that, um. So they were asking for a sign from heaven. Now, now, in that in the language, in the culture, a sign was was kind of higher than a miracle. Uh, it, it was more than, than something that could happen in the earthly realm. Maybe they wanted uh, to hear the voice of God or, or some kind of visual theophany. Anyway, Jesus knew what their motives were, and he's telling them that sensationalism is evil. Doing something for its own sake is evil. And where did we get that before? All the way back in chapter 4 when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. You know, sensationalism always wants more than the gospel of the cross. Um, He says there's going to be a sign. It'll be one sign from heaven, and it will be my death when I'm in the grave for three days and then my resurrection. Now, I, I was curious, why did he call them evil, I understand, but why adulterous generation? Again, one of the early church fathers, Origen, who often has some wonderful insights, he said this about why he accused them of being part of an adulterous generation. Assume there are... Two laws, the law of the body, the flesh, which is in conflict with the law of the spirit, which is the husband to whom uh, they should be betrothed by God. But the other law is a seducer uh, of the soul, and as such, it is called adulterous. Interesting. Interesting. Well, let's go on. We're moving pretty quickly through this first section because we've got to dig deep in the next section. Verse 5 through 12. When the disciples reached the other side, they'd forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch out uh, and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They said to one another, Is it because we've brought no bread? And becoming aware of it, Jesus said, You have little faith, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How could you fail to perceive that I was not speaking about bread? Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he had not told them to beware of the yeast of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. A few things to see in this episode. They're in the boat and they go, "Uh uh-oh, we forgot to bring any bread. I think Matthew included this to, to show us there's a constant temptation in our lives, to look to look at our lack of supply more than uh, looking with faith on what Jesus will do. We talk quite a bit about this in Chapter 14, of feeding the five thousand, and Chapter 15, the four thousand. But this is still a reality for the disciples. They've just seen these great feeding miracles, and yet there they've come into that temptation again to worry about their lack. So what can we learn from this episode here? You know, whenever we face a new challenge, a struggle, a threatening situation, it is so easy for us to forget our history with Christ. This is what he challenges him with. He says, don't you see or don't you perceive? He's talking about spiritual eyes, heavenly perspective. Have you already lost your heavenly perspective, he says to them? We've got to consciously hold on to having a higher view, a heavenly perspective. What are you doing now, Lord? And then he says, don't you remember. You know, when we're faced with with fear or the pressures on in that moment, that pressure can make us forget. It's like spiritual amnesia. Um, Maybe we're faced with a a great need. Someone needs healing. And even though we've we've watched the Lord do a whole bunch of healing over the last while in our lives, now we're faced with it and it is so easy to just forget, oh no, what's going to happen? These are the times when we must very intentionally lean into Jesus' faithfulness in our lives. Because if it was so for the disciples, it's also for us. And Christostom, another great church father, uh, he recognizes this spiritual amnesia because he said this, Why did Jesus not say plainly, beware of their teaching"? His purpose is to rather remind them of what had just been done, the feeding of the multitude, for he knew that they had already forgotten its significance. Boy, it's so easy for our, our that amnesia, for our faith to leak away. That's when we got to fix our eyes on Jesus. Now he says, watch out for the yeast of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were were an interesting group. They were they were skeptical of all things supernatural. They only held to the first five books of Mo- the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, they were skeptical about anything supernatural, uh, healing, angels, even the resurrection. You know, it's like they were the modernists of their time. Now, the Pharisees, they were the legalists of their time. Um, they were the ones who, who put those heavy weights on people where they said, you know, our, our behavior is never good enough. We never have enough faith. We never have enough obedience. Now, we can find both of these out there, both of those voices in and around the church. What Jesus is saying is he's condemning all leaders that that say anything that blocks people from their faith in him. Whether it's downplaying, oh, that isn't really real, or whether there's such a an oppressive kind of you've got to perform, you've got to perform. I remember one time being invited to a church in another country, and I walked in and I thought, whoa, is it ever heavy here? And nothing had even started yet. The music hadn't started. Nothing. I could just feel it. And then as I listened, and then as I was introduced, it was classic Phariseeism. It was, you're not doing enough. There weren't enough for you at the prayer meeting. You need to be, you need to, you need to, you need to. Jesus is saying anything, whether it's that strictness or whether it's that very liberal modernist, oh, you don't really need to believe it. Anything. That, that that is a hindrance of what Jesus later will call a stumbling block. Um, that's what he's condemning. So now we come to the meat of what I want to share today. Peter's great declaration, verses 13 to 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one, that he was Jesus the Christ or the Messiah. Now, this is the most written about passage in all of Matthew's gospel. It's not the resurrection, not the crucifixion. This is the most written about. It was in the early church, in the early church fathers' writings. It was in the Middle Ages. It was in the Reformation. And it is now in modern theological writing. And and this passage became a point of great divide between the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox, and then later between the Catholics and the Protestants. This is really the pivot point in Matthew's Gospel. From this point on, the narrative begins to move quicker and quicker and quicker. Now, let's go back and look at it. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Caesarea Philippi was a city that was in the northernmost region of Palestine, of Israel. Uh, it was in the region of Ituria. It was north and east of the Sea of Galilee. It was technically within Palestine, but it was almost thoroughly a Gentile region. You may remember many weeks ago when we talked about the, the woman with the issue of blood and she knelt down and took hold of the hem of Jesus' garment. I told you there was a statue of that at the gates of Caesarea Philippi. So Jesus said, well, who do they say the Son of Man is? He was using his favorite term. And why was he asking the disciples? He wanted the disciples to tell him what level of understanding do the people have. You know, leaders often have to ask others for information because they won't get the the straight goods from the people. Now, Jesus had not said He'd made no declaration that he was the Christ, the Messiah. But it was through two years of exposure to uh, what he did and what he said that led to the disciples' understanding. I think there's a really important application for us here. We should not be pressing people to make a decision to turn their hearts to Christ. Uh, I've watched this so often, and I I don't believe we, we should press them. We should hurry them. We should follow Jesus' example. He wasn't in a hurry. He let them simply be with him, and then they would discover who he is. I think we have the same principle. You know, we're doing a lot of work right now in helping establish house churches. We just found uh, four new house churches being established this week, north of Toronto. But one of the things we talk about is that belonging comes before believing. In other words, what we're saying is when people are simply with the church, when when they're with those who love Jesus, then... In God's time, their hearts will turn to him. Uh, I learned this in India through the House Church Network there years ago. So I think there's a lesson. That doesn't mean we never say anything about the Lord at all. I'm not saying that. But I am saying we don't push somebody. You know you need to decide right now. This is the time. Jesus didn't do that. Verse 14. When he said, who do people say? Well, some say John the Baptist but others elijah and still others jeremiah or one of the prophets the people recognized that jesus wasn't just another man he was someone very special and it's interesting that 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 in this list they they've got elijah who was the most revered of the old testament prophets jeremiah but even john the baptist so i don't know maybe there's a a hint there of uh, reincarnation for them um but what there really is here is by saying all those things clearly they were very excited about jesus and i think that they were excited about the spectacular about the miracles they'd seen remember jesus already said to them uh when he was feeding the 5,000, he said, you're just following because of the miraculous provision of bread. Now, now, Jesus was certainly not rejecting them for their excitement over the miracles because um, he knew the power of miracles to change people's hearts and to open them to the gospel. John 14, 11, uh, or if you want you could look at uh, john 10:38 jesus said believe me that i am in the father and the father is in me but if you do not then believe me because of the works themselves and i think 10:38 says because they point to me they're excited about the miracles they're excited there's this incredible buzz but don't forget these are the same people who turned on jesus especially when they thought by their standards they were detecting weakness or vulnerability in him so they're excited and then they turn folks we must pursue christ not the spectacular now we don't deny these things in fact i embrace them Many of you know that for, I've been praying for the sick since 1977, I've told people. And, and I take teams all over the world and we watch miracles happen. We love those, but we don't chase after that. We, we, our hearts long for Jesus. This is so, so important. You know, this whole thing of running after it. I've, I remember a time. I remember a time in the '90s when there was a someone who who had become very, very well known as as a uh, an insightful prophet. And at conferences, he would call people out by name and he would tell them things about their life. Well, what I remember is. Before the the doors would open, crowds gathering, and then the doors open and they would run, they'd practically trample over each other. They'd run. These were conferences of five, six thousand. They'd run so they could get to the front, so they could be the closest to this uh these prophetic activity. That's that's sensationalism. We can we could all think of places where where there seems to be something stirring and people just Go crazy over it. I am not against prophecy. I'm for it. I am not against healing and miracles. Absolutely, I'm for them and I'm involved in them. I just got a text a few days ago. I prayed for someone and uh, they had to go overseas and they texted me and said they're completely healed. So please hear me. I'm not saying no to those things. I'm saying we must so carefully keep our eyes on Jesus the author and the finisher of our our faith. Well, let's move on. Verse 15, he says, after they say, these are what all the people are saying. He says, but who do you say I am? And of course, this is the key question in every age. Now, it's interesting because over the last 250 years, the answer to this question in many circles has become smaller and smaller. And uh, let me just give you a real quick overview. We don't have time for a whole church history lesson, but something that came in to being, starting really about 250 years ago, was what's called the theological worldview, and it came in reaction to the materialism of the Enlightenment, which which was was seeing God as as being this distant deity, and that there was nothing if you couldn't. If you couldn't see it, hear it, touch it, it wasn't real. So so something in response to that evolved, and it's what's called the theological worldview. And it said this, God is really only interested in heavenly things and uh, not here on the earth. And so salvation became about getting to heaven. And we know that that led to kind of an escapist theology. Well, then later... In the, the last half of the 19th century into the early 20th century, <laughs> Jesus, the presentation of Jesus got smaller again because it said that scripture can be studied apart from revelation. You can just figure it out. If you've got enough uh, material, enough information, if you can do what's called redactive comparison, which is you take one passage and compare it to another. There's all these, all these intellectual tools you don't need revelation and, and this quickly became kind of an anti-supernatural movement in theology that I, I remember it when i was young uh, jesus walking in the water well actually there's a lot of shoals and sandbars and he knew where they were or feeding the five 000. well actually just by taking it and sharing it with his friends he gave an example and everybody else did this All of this led to a smaller Jesus, a Jesus without miracles, and a Jesus without incarnation. In the 20th century, he got smaller still, because Jesus was now simply a good man. He was a wise man, but but his wisdom was for back then, and much of it isn't relevant for the realities of the modern age. Well, now let's look again. Who do you say I am at a personal level? Simply to say this, my answer, your answer, will impact directly the, the whole movement of my life, the meaning of my life, the motive of my life. So this is the key question. Now let's, let's move to the most central passage of what we're looking at today. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ Christ the Son of the living God. Now, in in the Greek, both you and are are emphasized. So it's even beyond saying you are the Christ, it's you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Messiah, Christ, the same word. one, One is Greek, one's Hebrew. But it was a commonly held title of hope. In first century Palestine, it meant there's God's going to send a human deliverer, uh, and He's going to change everything. Now, that verse, "Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God." I wonder how many times I've said that in preaching over the years. For for years, I've seen this verse as the high watermark of Matthew's gospel. Um. You know, we heard similar things when Jesus walked on the water. We looked at it just recently. The disciples said, you are the Son of God. But here for the first time, someone, and it's Peter, is saying, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. I've always pictured this as kind of a breakthrough time, a point of celebration among the angels, the heavenly hosts, the cloud of witnesses, because Finally, it's been said out loud. Now, where did this happen? (laughs) Matthew records that, that Jesus had brought them to a Gentile region. They're surrounded by Gentiles when this amazing revelation, this amazing proclamation is made. So you see, once again, Matthew is enlarging his reader's understanding of the universality of the gospel. He keeps making this gospel more and more inclusive, if we can just see it. So it's exciting. What a revelation. But we're going to see in the next episode that that Peter's revelation is incomplete. Now, Peter asked, or Jesus asked, all the twelve, who do you say I am? But but, just as we can count on from Peter, he's the one who jumped up and immediately spoke up. And, and you know, there is a, a an impetuousness about Peter, but I think likely it's he had a greater revelation. He was just a little further down the track. He was more certain. He was more convinced. Peter understands That God the Father has given his Son, and this Son, you are, is the Christ, the Messiah, the King here upon the earth. Dale Bruner wrote this, Peter understands the first half of the gospel. Jesus is the unique Son of God who gives life. Peter is right about the person of Jesus— but he must still learn the other half of the gospel, that through the work of Christ, God suffers and is not just triumphant. We're going to see this clearly in a few verses. One of the great reformers, Martin Luther, said that he learned from this confession of Peter, who Jesus was, and from Jesus' solemn institution of the church immediately after, he learned that the true church needs to know nothing else but Christ. Remember, Paul said, I, I, I purpose to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And, and he says that the true church need to know nothing else than Christ and that one recognizes false churches by the simple fact that false churches preach something other than Christ. I'm going to bang on the same drum again. With all my heart, I believe our Western churches in the 21st century, we need to preach Christ. Not what Christ does for me, how I can be more successful or anything else. We need to preach the glorious Jesus Christ. We need to worship Christ. Pay attention to the worship. Are you worshiping Jesus Christ? Are you Are you joining with the angels? Is it, is it like the, the hymns of Revelation, chapter 4 and 5 and 15 and 19? Worshiping Christ. And whenever we gather, are we taking time to pray to Christ? Verse 17, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Flesh and blood, you didn't figure this out yourself, Peter. This was revelation. It teaches us that his faith that rose up was a gift from God. You see, the Father not only sends his Son, he sends the gift of faith in his Son. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you have done, so none of us can boast about it. There's nothing about Peter's character, nothing about his spiritual sensitivity or anything else that enables him to make this great confession. It is all grace. It is all gift. That's what's happening right now. And remember a few chapters ago, chapter 11 verse 27, Jesus said this, "No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and the one uh, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him." <sighs> Blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah or Bar Jonah. It's the only time Jesus ever addresses Peter this way. I think he was implying something here when he did that. I think he was saying something like, "Just as you are the true Son of Jonah, I am the true Son of the Heavenly Father. Christostom believed that in the same way that Peter was the very substance of his father Jonah, so Jesus was the very substance of his Father, the living God. Now, the people, as I said, they knew that Jesus was someone special. They thought he was like one of the prophets. But they had no revelation. The roots didn't go down deep into it because they were basically just caught up in the excitement. They were making assumptions. Well, surely he must be one of these. Jesus wanted Peter to know the power and the great value of, of the revelation of what he had just spoken, because those words came from the Father. We're going to see that with revelation comes responsibility. Let me say that again. When you get revelation, it's a package deal. It comes with responsibility. So often, God is calling us further up, or he's calling us to greater purity, or he's calling us to something that takes more faith. Whatever he's doing, it comes with responsibility. By the way, it is so important that when the Father reveals something to you, value it. Uh, record it. Uh, we've got uh, a friend of this ministry, Mark Verkler, coming um, to 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 talk about that uh, very thing of how to record that so we need to be like mary who ponders these things in her heart verse 18 You see, there's an awful lot in every one of these verses. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's verse 18 and 19, and this was a real pivotal passage for me. But before I tell you about that, let's take this apart a little bit. This verse um, is at the very heart of Matthew's gospel. This verse is a particular verse that is the most written about within this whole passage that's the most written about. This is the point where Jesus renames Simon, and he calls him Peter. Now, when we read all through Peter and Acts, uh, all through about Peter, they're all—all those references are retroactive— He wasn't known until that moment as Peter, So and and so they went to Peter's mother-in-law. No, they went to Simon's mother-in-law, but the writers are putting it in place because of this shift. He's given a whole new name. So from this point on, he's known as Peter, the Aramaic equivalent, by the way, is Cephas. You'll see Paul uses that in 1 Corinthians. By the way, both Cephas and Peter were unknown names at that time. It wasn't... It wasn't a name like George or Bill. Nobody had that name. Jesus chose it because of its specific literal meaning. And he said, I will build my church. Peter will not build his church. Jesus will. The church does not belong to Peter, his successors, or any church leader. I promise you, as we get involved in in shepherding a church and pastoring and making all kinds of decisions, again and again, leaders have got to keep this truth constantly before them. It's not my church. Jesus, you're going to build it. And it takes some time to get that from here to here. Matthew is recording, at this point, the establishment of a whole new kind of community called the church. And, uh, it will recognize Jesus' true identity, as Peter did. It will become the focus of God's salvation activity. By the way, church only appears twice in all of the Gospels, and both of them are in Matthew. He says, and upon this rock. Now, this rock leads us to a point of huge discussion for over 1,600 years, is Peter the Rock, or is Peter's declaration of the Christ the Rock? The Catholics developed a theology that said that Peter was the Rock, and that the unique authority and place that Jesus gave him was passed on in perpetuity to all of Peter's successors. Um, Apostolic succession, it's called, or... Sometimes papal succession. According to the early church fathers, uh, including Ignatius and Irenaeus, who are very early. They both lived in the first century into early, early in the second. According to them, Peter was the bishop in Rome before his martyrdom. Uh, The Catholics believe that Jesus was specifically honoring Peter's office as well as the person of Peter. Now, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they recognize Peter as the original bishop of Rome. But the Eastern Orthodox Church believes that what Jesus said to Peter was just for Peter. And then we come to the Protestant Church. And many of us come from that tradition. In the Protestant Church, they believe that the rock is the revelation that Jesus had. It will be this revelation, this declaration of Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God that will be the foundation upon which the church will be built. Now, most of us come from that evangelical tradition, and we've been taught strongly that Jesus was not referring to Peter as the rock. So you've got Peter is the rock, and you've got Peter is not the rock, it's what he said is. I think there's a third possibility. The rock is the revelation and the declaration. But Peter was also being singled out in a very special way. Not just his declaration, but Peter himself. If we are honest, we cannot legitimately deny that at this point, Jesus is honoring the person of Peter. And he says to him, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Now, the keys of the kingdom likely refers to the demonstration and the proclamation of the gospel that brings freedom and uh, unlocks those in bondage to sin and death. That's why they're the keys. So it's the proclamation and demonstration of the kingdom. Now, Peter clearly did this. We'll look at this again in a minute, but he clearly did this. First, he did it for the Jews. At Pentecost, Acts 2, then Jesus uniquely used Peter to break down the barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles in Acts 10 with Cornelius. Folks, in reaction to the issue of papal succession, I think we've purposely downplayed, even ignored, Peter's unique place. His revelation was the rock, but it was the person of Peter who made that confession. And in this, I believe he was uniquely blessed. Peter's more than a representative uh, of all disciples, of all believers, which is very much the Protestant view. But at the same time, he's not the unique holder of an office that will be passed down. Peter is a disciple with a unique role in salvation history, in God's purposes for the world. I'm going to take just a few more minutes here because I I want to give you some basis for what I believe because this has been a big issue in church history. Let's look at some of the church fathers. Christostom saw Peter's confession as the first one that came from a true knowledge of the uniqueness and divinity of Christ and therefore was the first which could rightly have been said to be divinely inspired. It was therefore on this Rock of divinely informed faith that the church would be built. To quote Christostom, he says, Therefore, Christ added this, and I say unto you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, that is, on the faith of his confession. Let's look at another church father, Origen. He believed that all who professed the same belief as Peter could also be called the rock. Indeed, he even held that those gifts which were conferred to Peter were no less conferred to any other believer. He said, And if we too have said like Peter, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, not as if flesh and blood had revealed it to us, but by light from the Father in heaven, having shone in our heart, then we become a Peter. For a rock is every disciple of Christ. St. Hilary said this, this faith, Peter's confession, that which is the foundation of the church, through this faith, the gates of hell cannot prevail against her. This is the faith which has the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And there are many more, but I think that's enough. So, how did this idea of apostolic or papal succession begin? When did it happen? Well, it's a bit of a complicated story. As the Roman Empire was declining, um, it had had been the rock of civilization for uh, 800 years or more, but it was in serious decline. And as it was declining in power, the, the power and influence of the church, and especially the Bishop of Rome, began to rise. Because it became the cohesive element in society. It wasn't some plan, oh, we're going to take over. It was just the movement of history. It, was, it became a place of relative stability, significant stability, compared to the surroundings. And, and in the midst of this change came the doctrine of apostolic succession that what Jesus declared to Peter was true for all who followed him as the bishop of Rome. The term papal supremacy dates back to the 6th century. And uh, within 200 years, the church became more and more powerful, and it carried not only authority over the church, but increasingly it even came with political authority. The pope's authority over the sheep came to mean authority over the kings of nations. Okay, I wanted to make sure we understood that issue. So, who cares? Why what Jesus said to Peter? Why should that even matter to us? Well, you know, we often see Peter in the gospel as as impetuous, as kind of emotionally up and down, even violent, remember, in the garden with the sword, and yet, Jesus calls him the rock. He does this for no other disciple. Now here's where I want us to get a hold of something. St. Augustine famously said of the Lord, He is closer to me than I am to myself. Jesus knew Peter better than Peter did, because he knew the true Peter. Jesus knew of Peter's faults and weaknesses, But what mattered to him was uh, that which was best in Peter. Jesus sees the best in us. He sees the true us. He sees uh, his life in us. He knew Peter was going to stumble. In in just a few verses, we'll go into it in the next episode, he's going to call Peter a stumbling block. He's going to say, get behind me, Satan. He knew that Peter was going to deny him when he needed him most. Chapter 26, he he knew that that he was going to have wavering times uh, among the Gentiles. Galatians 2, remember, Paul rebuked him. But Jesus also knew that Peter would be at his very best the day of Pentecost. He would be at his very best in the earliest days of the Jerusalem church. He would be at his very best when he stepped over his deep prejudices in order to preach to the Gentiles in Acts 10. When he remained faithful throughout his life, even to the point of being crucified in Rome 30 years later. Beloved, Jesus sees who we really are. When Jesus looks at you and me, he sees the very best in us. Remember we looked in the parables at the wheat and the tares and how we just want to get rid of the tares. And I said, maybe God's not so offended by my failures. Maybe he uses them to bring me closer to him and to conform me more and more into the image of his son. The next phrase here, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. There are three main interpretations here for the gates of Hades not prevailing. Number one, rescue from death. The gates of Hades, you know Hades is the place of the dead. uh, uh, um, That the gates of Hades would not be able to resist Christ's power when he comes back in his glory at the second coming to call the faithful dead to himself. A second interpretation is that Christ breaks into Hades. Hades is that place of the dead in the Old Testament. It's called Sheol. Did you know for 1,500 years, the church universally understood that on what we call Holy Saturday, Jesus went down into Hades. He preached this gospel that he is the Christ, the Son of the Living God. He preached it with power and authority, his true identity, and then he broke open in the gates. Paul says this in Ephesians 4:8, when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. A third interpretation is a rescue from evil in the last days when the evil powers under the control of Satan come to overwhelm the world. They will be saved by Christ's protective power here on earth, that the believers will not be overwhelmed. Verse 19 I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. <clears throat> really important passage. This whole section's pretty dense, isn't it? The book of Acts gives us some answers to what are the keys. Because Jesus, or rather Peter, used those keys that he was given through the preaching on Pentecost, through healing. You look in the early chapters of Acts, you see him continually healing. Uh, the Jews who brought into this new community, the church, uh, through his preaching and healing. Later, Peter went to Samaria And then he went to the Gentiles, Acts 10, I mentioned earlier. Peter did not just receive the the keys of the kingdom. He actively used them. The keys are effective witness to Jesus. Another church father, Tertullian, said this about the keys of the kingdom. They are the declarative authority for the offer of forgiveness of sin through the preaching of the gospel. If people respond to the message, they are loosed from their sins. If they reject it, they remain bound in their sins. He gives us the keys in order to use them. He says, freely you've received, freely give. We've got to be so careful. I'm all about equipping and making disciples. We just came back a couple of weeks ago from a a whole four-day event on that. But we're being equipped for works of service, Ephesians 4.12 tells us, that there's a trap in the church of, of more and more and more learning, more books, more conferences, even more and more altar calls without actually putting what we receive into practice. Remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the one who puts it into practice is built on, here's the word again, the rock. And the one who just likes the ideas but doesn't put them into practice is building on the sand. And then he goes on after he talks about the keys. He says, what you bind and loose. The, the literal Greek here is, is a bit awkward for our ears, but it, it reveals something important. So listen closely. This is a, a more literal translation. And whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in the heavens. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed In the heavens. This suggests to me that when Peter uses the keys, when he takes action with those keys he's been given, it will already have been decided in heaven. It was already decided, works prepared for him. Remember Ephesians 2: Therefore, Peter is not the initiator, but the faithful steward of what God already has desired. Jesus is telling Peter that he and us is now the mediator of the grace, the blessing, the purposes of God in the world. I've many a time told the story, and I don't really have the time to, to flesh it out here, but, but when, when a young mute boy suddenly got his speech, he'd never spoken in his life, he was about 11, when a girl who'd been deaf for 10 years suddenly could hear, the Lord said to me, as clear as a bell, he said, I've been waiting for years to do that, but no one would release it. No one would use the keys of the kingdom. Verse 20, our last verse today. Then Jesus sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Why did Jesus say this to the disciples at this crucial moment, just when Peter has the great revelation? You know, Jesus had not been going around announcing that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah. For one thing, he knew it was a very politically charged term. It was a term connected with their anticipation of a Savior who would come and overthrow the Romans and forcefully bring in a time of peace. That was the understanding of Messiah. If the disciples went out now, they would have an incorrect message of the gospel it would be a gospel based on success and triumph and power probably based on political opinions against the romans (laughs) next week we're going to see a clear example of of wrong understanding peter is now clearly christ-centered in his understanding but he believes he's following a triumphant christ Next week, we're going to hear him say, this shall never happen to you, Lord. It's because it doesn't fit in his paradigm of what the Christ, the Messiah is. He really believes he's following a triumphant Christ. He has no understanding or awareness of a Christ cross-centered gospel. He has a Christ-centered, but not a cross-centered. And I'm going to have to stop there. There's much more we could say about that, but I'll, I'll develop it next week. If you just stick around for another minute or so, Tim's going to join me, and uh, we're going to discuss some of this. And uh, we welcome any questions or comments that you have. God bless you.
0: Now what? The gospel's meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comment section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcasts at impactnations.com. All right. Well, uh, you didn't quite get through the whole chapter, but um, uh, I think that was the right call because there was lots to go through there. Um, and I, I've got some questions, just some follow-up. But I really appreciated even just the history lesson on kind of how we got to the to the Pope's position and things like that as as things developed over time and stuff. Um, I always learn something new. There you go. <laughs> as do our listeners, by the way. We've heard from our listeners that they are really enjoying the podcast. Uh, send us a note sometime. Uh, podcast at ImpactNations.com. We'd love to hear from you. We have uh, heard from from a few donors actually recently who gave uh, some of them for the first time and just said, you know what, I've been listening to the podcast for a long time and uh, it's time I I get off the bench and get get participating and and partnering with Impact Nations.
1: And I got um, one a few days ago from East Africa.
0: Oh, said, we're
1: watching you in Africa.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. Um, I wanted to mention to people, we haven't talked – I don't think recently about our feeding fund. And I was saying to Isaiah in a meeting today, uh, we had been calling it the COVID feeding fund, but it's starting to shift back where there's a little bit more emergency relief stuff happening. And uh, so we'll probably just kind of lift the COVID label off of this fund. But um, for as long as I can remember, Impact Nations has been feeding the hungry. Uh, and we called it the Isaiah 58 Feeding Fund for a long time. And I just wanted to update people on two things that happened uh, just in the last week as a result of their giving to that fund. Um, One, in Nepal actually, uh, we had uh, contact there. Community had been flooded out, very severe flooding. Uh, Many homes uh, either destroyed or just submerged underwater and they all had to flee and and find shelter elsewhere. They had nothing. We were able to provide uh, for 24 Families to get them the food they needed for a while before they can kind of get settled again, um, and then secondly, we were able to provide food uh, two to three weeks worth. We estimate, hard to say, uh, for 270 families who were refugees from Afghanistan. Yeah, uh, and uh, one of our partners heard of of them nearby and basically just ran to the rescue met with them, said, what can we do, how can we help? And they said, we're starving, we have no work, we have no food, we have nothing. Uh, And so Impact Nations was able to provide for 270 families who had just recently fled from Afghanistan. It's interesting, we'd, we'd received a lot of questions, I've received a lot of questions from Impact Nations family members when they saw what was happening in Afghanistan a couple months ago, just saying... Do we have a presence there? What can we do? And yep. I said, well, we, we're just going to have to wait uh, and see if we find any refugees. Sure enough, we did. Uh, and so that was a start. That was yep. a start. Now keep, stay That's tuned. That's
1: enough to keep them eating for a few weeks, right? That's yes. not just yeah, like we give gave everybody yeah. a meal.
0: Yeah, it could be Yeah, it could be as much as three weeks worth of food. Okay. Um, mostly dry goods so they don't have to refrigerate things. Um, Great. Because they have nothing. They're living in a yes. very desperate way. So um, anyway... We that's just the beginning. We, we're talking with the leaders of that community, trying to figure out what are some long-term sustainable options. So uh, we've actually asked for four. We said, hey, tell us four ways we could help long-term, and we'll see we'll see if any of that overlaps with what Impact Nations is real good at doing. So looking forward to that. Stay tuned. But uh, if you want to learn more about that, you can see some photos of updates of both of those projects in the updates section. If you just go to impactnations.com slash feeding, um, read about the Isaiah 58 fund and give. By the way, 100% of your gift to that fund goes directly to the poor that would none of that uh goes into any management fees or anything and like that. sometimes
1: within 48 to 72 absolutely. hours it's food yeah. in your hand
0: yeah it is yeah. yeah so when we hear of the need we're there so yeah. and then we're just we've got ongoing feeding programs in uh many countries around the world as well so uh anyway ImpactNations.com/feeding. Thanks so much. Uh, all right, I've got some questions. Forgive me, I'm just going to look at my phone because I've got a lot of questions today, and I got to see what we've got time for. But uh, you started off with this um, this idea that there's no need to hurry people to a decision. You know, you're talking about how these these guys had been with Jesus for two years before yep. he even asks this question. Yep. Um, and yet, and we've talked about this here before. Sometimes we as we're preaching the gospel to uh, in a public space to a large group of people, I mean, you've taught me, add a sense yep. of urgency. Yep. Come, now is the time. Absolutely. So what's the... Those two concepts seem to be yeah. in contradiction. Well, wow. so.
1: sounds like paradox. Indeed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we're going to get there too. <laughs> um,
1: uh, it's right. I go into a village with a team and I've got one night, Yeah, but... What I have done behind the scenes is work with our partners for them to build a relationship to invite them into their lives, mm. not to make sure they pray to prayer. Yeah, I give them that as a point of beginning. Yeah. Um, you know, I was just recently studying on the sinner's prayer, and uh, it's even newer than I thought it was. Oh, yeah, I, I thought uh, it. it it was a mourner's bench, which was not a sinner's prayer, um, in the early 1800s, and that's when I thought it began. It didn't begin till um, in its final form until about the 1930s, if wow. you can imagine. So anyway, that's a little bit. Well, a no, no, but now thrill. you got
0: me curious. Mourner's bench. Put a little bit of meat on that. Bone. Oh, like, wait. <laughs> uh, there's a
1: bench up at the front, yeah. and if you're ready to get serious with God and mm. repent, wow. you gum. And then that was that was Finney. And then Moody adjusted that to the Inquirer's room, and they went up to a room, and there was a team there. Yeah. And that's okay. a pretty good model, yeah. actually. Um, but it wasn't until a guy named Billy Sunday, mm-hmm. who had, was a former professional baseball player, and he was a real fire-and-brimstone, <laughs> yeah. entertaining, but sincere believer, that um, the uh, pretty close to what we now call a sinner's prayer mm-hmm. But it didn't really get solidified fully until uh, around the early days of Billy Graham. Hmm. And then uh, Bill Bill Bright was the first one to write down the sinner's prayer. So that's an aside. How did <laughs> I get there? <laughs> uh, you asked me a question and I went that way.
0: <laughs> I like it. Now I'd, I wish we could just go down that rabbit trail, but I have more questions. Um, all right. I'm just gonna have a quote here that you'd given from Luther, I think, which was "False churches preach something other than Christ." Uh, that was that was Luther saying that, yep. which is quite some time ago. Can you can you put that into maybe our current uh, Western evangelical context? Like, is there a risk? Are we? How can we evaluate whether or not our church is uh, is a true church that worships okay. Jesus that preaches Jesus?
1: Well, Luther, being a man of his times, mm-hmm. you know, breaking away from the the only church yeah. in the West, uh, hence the uh, Protestant protest movement, yeah. he was not famous for sugarcoating it. Yeah. Um, and so he really spoke in pretty black and white terms. Mm-hmm. But there's a lesson there. That's why I put it in. Yeah. If we've... And, and I talked for a moment about that. Uh, uh, I'm looking... When I go into church, I really want to see that it is absolutely Christ-centered, mm-hmm. that we are worshiping Christ. We've talked about that here. You and I have talked about it multiple times. Mm-hmm. It's not songs about me, um, it's you, yeah. and that the preaching is absolutely Christ-centered as opposed to what can happen, and I know this... You know, I know this probably from my first 10 years of pastoring. Mm-hmm. You can get on some themes and you say what you want to say and then you find verses that'll fit it, yeah. right? And that's, that's really backwards. So that's what I would say. And also prayer. I would frankly like to see uh, some corporate prayer. I really believe... Uh, that we threw out the baby with the bathwater when we start stop doing any kind of responsive or liturgical prayer, whether mm-hmm. we pray one of the psalms together or pray one of the creeds. So I think we need to worship, we need to be taught, and we need to pray in a thoroughly Christ-centered way. Okay. Uh,
0: the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Yeah. <laughs> we look around the world today— And there are certainly times when I think to myself, and I'm sure our listeners are thinking the same, like, man, darkness seems to be prevailing all over the place. Um, What's the deal?
1: And as it did then. Yeah. Well, I don't know the full deal, right? (laughs) Theodicy is a word for it. But uh, I know that what, what I'm... I agree with historical positions on what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about ultimate reality, the final truth. Mm -hmm. Whether that is um, it is second coming or whether that is his descent into Hades on Holy Saturday, these are things that refer to the enemy can't snatch you away. Yeah. the power of darkness increases and increases, and these are days where lots of us are getting having not to get discouraged, yeah. right? Because um, for some of us, discouragement is our besetting sin, mm. right? Um, so that's the application. There is, you know, the... Boy, it's a huge issue. I think what we should do and I'll get you to remind me, I think one day, maybe Brad and I will will do a, a joint interview with you mm-hmm. on that very issue. What's the deal with yeah. evil in the world?
0: Yeah. Good. Um, speaking of discouragement, by the way, I, I was encouraged by the way you pointed out some of the ways that Peter continued to struggle after this moment. Uh, including just a few verses later. Mm-hmm. Uh because I you know at first I I wondered like oh you know Peter's got a bad rap maybe uh after this point this was the big turning point and from here on they won't mess a, up yeah no. but then you listed three distinct ways in which he yep. did and I think I think that's actually a huge encouragement for us. I think there are times when we may feel like we get the call, we suddenly have clarity on what uh what God has called us to uniquely uh, and we've got our sense of mission, and then we mess up again, and suddenly the enemy's there, there to just say, "Yeah, see, you're a failure. You can't do it, or whatever." To see Peter, who I mean, I I just in my daily reading this morning I was in Acts two, which you know is one of my faves, and I I could I had to comment like here he <laughs> was preaching. I mean, fully operating in this level of authority we've never seen peter have before uh, clearly he's just been filled with the holy spirit he steps out onto that balcony and delivers this sermon to end all sermons sort of a thing and you just think like where did this guy
1: come from yeah
0: uh and and yet it was just a couple of days ago i was reading about him denying mm-hmm. uh, denying christ outside so yeah
1: uh, and and you know when when he fell into what paul called hypocrisy In uh, Galatians 2, that was probably in about uh, AD 48. Hmm. So you got mm, 18 years, and he's still. And that's why I really tried to stress in the parables um, uh, the wheat and the tares, that, that I think there really is something there. I think our sin horrifies us and traumatizes us and neutralizes us, Mm. and it doesn't so much for God. You know, I was just sharing with somebody two weeks ago, Habakkuk one thirteen, and we often hear um, as evangelicals, we hear the first half of that verse, Mm -hmm. you're too holy to look upon sin, but if we would just keep reading, therefore, why do you, (laughs) right? And and so we assume the first half, but... Uh, it's all grace, right? It's all grace. I said I said he he even gives us not only his son, but he gives us the faith to follow his son. yeah
0: hmm. <laughs> Sorry, one more aside. I just had to laugh in my reading just a couple of days ago, as I was finishing up the Gospels moving into Acts, I was reading John's account of the resurrection, and I just had to laugh because. These guys, like they were so human. They even in John's writing, he's he's throwing shade. Like he's yeah, there's just a bit of trash hey, I, talk. I, I beat, I him, beat the, him to the tomb. Yeah, <laughs> just
1: made me. laugh. I run a four point four forty. He runs a four point nine. Yeah. yeah, I know. Poor Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Love that one. <laughs> They're so real. Oh yeah. These are they not are. cartoon characters. No. Yeah. So we. That's part of this whole series: learning to not read it two dimensionally. Yeah. You yeah. know.
0: Mm. Alright, uh, we began with paradox, and sorry, I know this episode is going a little long, but these, I, I wanted to ask these questions. Uh, we began with paradox, let's finish with a question on paradox. Uh, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You talked about, uh, you know, even in your anecdote of, of God telling you like I've been waiting for somebody to release yeah. this. There is a theological paradox there. There's a tension. Because I you know, my answer to that a little bit is like, yeah, but isn't God omnipotent? Like why does he need us? Can't he just get the job done? Why does he need us to participate in releasing heaven on earth? And uh, you can't answer that in two minutes, I know that, but
1: I can try. Yeah. Give it a whirl. He doesn't need us. Hmm. But he chooses. Hmm. It's all an extension of the very nature of all creation is built upon free will, not coercion, Mm -hmm. of all creation. And uh, so he chooses to work with us and delight Hmm. as we take him by the hand and do that. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also a a thing, because if you look at a parallel passage near the end of John chapter 20, there's a concept really about forgiveness and i think we'll talk a little more about that later but that that loosing and binding has got all kinds of things with it uh, you know we've learned how to bind the enemy mm-hmm. uh, in some very practical ways you know that we teach the team yep. when there's like because the god of this age is blinded So they cannot receive the gospel. So we will pray a prayer that the person in front of us doesn't even know we're praying it because it's either quiet or in a a different language. And then ask them again, do you want to open up your heart to Jesus? And the no becomes yes. So there's that level. There is the uh, loosing the purposes, the blessing, right? Because remember, it's only – it's only children of the Father that really can release yeah. uh, authentic heavenly blessing. But there's also this forgiveness, loosing or holding on to, but loosing forgiveness. That one I'm not really prepared to share today so much on, not because it's a secret, but because I don't want to say things that I'll disagree with once I go deeper.
0: <laughs> oh, Very good. Well, that's a good good answer for now. Uh This has been a lot of fun. Sorry if you didn't like having a longer episode, but I did. Uh, So thanks for joining us this week at the Impact Nations podcast. Uh, Next week, as you mentioned, we've actually got Mark Verkler joining us. This is a really good reason, by the way, to make sure you're subscribed. Uh, Subscribe on YouTube if you like watching the video. Uh, And uh, you can do that by hitting subscribe, but then also hit that little bell to make sure you get a notification when we go
1: live. All right. All right. Thanks so much for being with us. We'll see you again next week. God bless. Bye-bye.